welcome to episode 12 of the world's best exchange and link podcast that UC Architects recorded on the 15th of November 2012. This week's show is a little shorter than usual, but rest assured we've got some great content coming up. I'm Steve Goodman, this week's host, and this week I'm joined via the windows of a link by a special guest, the Exchange Product Group's Greg Taylor. But first, let me introduce my fellow co-host this week, Link MVP, Power Richard, Exchange MVP, Sir Cam Varaglou, and Exchange Architects, Michael Van Horenbeek and Michael DeRouge. So, Pat, what have you been up to for the last week? Uh, just finishing up a big Link project before the holidays, and... Uh uh, getting ready for a little bit of time off before I switch gears and uh, head off to another project. Uh, Michael, what about you? Um, well, I've been busy doing some um, some projects around Office 365. Had to do a um, ADFS, uh, high available implementation, which was pretty fun, actually. Um, and other than that, looking forward to do some more Office 365 in the next weeks. And Sirkan, how are you? Ah, thank you. It was, for me, the last few weeks were exchange in the morning and for the last week it was Halo at night. Halo 4 is out so I'm playing Xbox at night now. <laughs> uh, on a tropical island and you spend your evenings playing Xbox. <laughs> yeah I know it's it's raining a lot these days. So <laughs> it's a nice time killer. Uh, Michelle welcome back to the show. How are you? Uh, I'm fine Steve. Uh, what have you been up to? I've been uh, up to uh, I'm finishing off a project uh, uh, implementing Exchange 2010, and I'm finish, uh, smoothing out some sharp edges on a, on a customer we are going to manage uh, remotely. So uh, that's uh, my week uh, so far. And on to our guest this week, Greg Taylor. Uh, Greg uh, works within Microsoft's Exchange product team and is best known for his work around client access and exchange. Uh, Greg, uh, just for those who don't know who you are, uh, would you be able to take a moment to just introduce yourself quickly? Sure. Uh, thanks, Steve, and, and thanks for uh, inviting me along to, uh, to this as, as well. So um, uh, I'm a program manager in the Exchange customer experience team. Uh, I have been with the product team two or so years, and before that, I ran the Exchange Master uh, and Architect programs for Exchange. And uh, before that, spent some time doing consulting with an MCS and for other partner companies outside outside Microsoft. So I've been doing kind of the Exchange thing for probably 12 or 14 years, something along those lines. So I've had a look on your bio, and I think it says you you started off your days uh, helping out little old ladies. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, um, I actually it was kind of funny. I, I got into IT because I was um, uh, working part time in a hotel restaurant as a kid, and uh, and then the the hotel restaurant updated all their all their computer systems. And I became more interested in figuring out how that stuff worked and helping get that work than you know, serving food and drinks to people. So um, I, I ended up working for the company that did the installation uh, of all the hotel systems, and I kind of went through, you know, point of sale, teaching little old ladies how to use uh, electronic point of sale systems, uh, and ended up as the IT manager for the company. So, which is where I got my first kind of taste of MS Mail and Exchange 5.0, 
um, NT4, that whole, even before that, actually, probably NT351. So that was kind of where I got my feet wet in the world of IT, and then I kind of went from there, really. So what uh, got you hooked onto Exchange? Uh, was there a moment when you saw it and you just thought, wow, this is amazing? I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I think like most people, I love getting that little yellow envelope. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I maybe I kind of am addicted to people want to tell me something or ask me something, and so that little yellow envelope is something I enjoy. And, and I remember uh, studying for MCP exams, um, like I'm sure many of us have. And, and I was kind of doing both AD and exchange. Uh, for a long time, I think like most exchange people, they kind of tend to do the two. And I realized, uh, I, I, I don't know, there was something about exchange that, that, that fascinated me. And this was 5.5 really at the time, how the internet mail service worked, how I could connect to parts of our organization over the internet and do directory sync and mail exchange and all that stuff. And I just kind of focused on exchange because after all, Active Directory is just a triangle anyway, you know, and how hard can it really be, right? That's AD. <laughs> um, and can so, we quote you on that? <laughs> yeah, you can, yeah. I mean, after all, I mean, we, you know, don't forget that Exchange, the underlying database that AD uses is ESE, right? So that's Exchange, obviously. So, in fact, it is true that AD actually runs on Exchange, if you think about it. So um, that's not strictly true. <laughs> that's point. Um, and, that, and it was just, it was just, you know, AD just seemed like meh to me, and Exchange seemed far more interesting, and uh, that was kind of really I focused my efforts at that stage. Uh, and uh, a few years later, here you are uh, over in Redmond as well. Then, yeah, I wouldn't probably have imagined it, uh, um, and yeah, I think probably hoped it and dreamed it at the time. Um, but you know, worked worked hard, broke broke a lot of. Uh, systems I'm sure over the years worked on a lot of customers projects in the UK uh, for a few years some big customers there and then made the move to the US uh, in 2008 and uh, haven't looked back since really so, so one thing I, I've often wondered is is what's the the difference between uh, uh, what uh, people I know in Microsoft in the UK like uh, Neil Hobbs and so on do uh, where they work in in MCS and uh, uh, between what you guys do over over in the states in this customer experience team, uh, okay, how does so, a, a typical day no, go down for you? A typical day. So, um, well, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a, a father of small children, so my typical day is probably not that it doesn't start that much differently than anybody else's. Uh, small <laughs> children to get ready for school and uh, and do the usual routine every morning, which my children seem to forget how to do every day for some reason. So we do all that again. But um, I have a, I'm pretty lucky. I work, I, I can work from home or I go into the office. It really depends on what I have going on that day. Um, I generally have, uh, there's a couple of meetings each morning. We have daily uh, bug triages that go on, both for legacy products, things we've already got in market, plus things, uh, the, the current development of the current product. And so I tend to focus more on in the job I'm doing in in legacy, what was already in the market. So 2010, um, obviously, I'm, I'm older, uh, is where I tend to now, obviously, 2013, as we've RTM'd as well. So I tend to focus on that. So I get involved in the discussions about bugs that come in, and we try and understand what the bugs are and uh, triage them and prioritize them, that kind of stuff. Um, and then I, you know, maybe have a 
customer meeting or two over the phone during the day, um, sometimes in person. Maybe customers are coming into Redmond. Um, I have that fairly, you know, fairly frequently where customers come in and we have meetings in Redmond uh, and discuss all aspects of exchange or other things they've got going on. And then I spend the rest of my time either working on features. Um, so I'm a PM for several features within the product. Um, or working on documentation or guidance or presentations for conferences or fighting fires, the usual kind of stuff that goes on. So, you know, to answer your question, how kind of how does the work I do differ probably from a, a field consultant? They're kind of primarily billable to one customer and they're doing a design or an architecture or an implementation for a particular customer. And I'm more focused on the product and helping develop the product and the guidance that goes around that, but supporting people, you know, in the field who are doing design and architecture stuff. So when they have questions about how they do something or how they should configure something or architecturally, you know, what we'd recommend, then kind of that's where it comes into the team that I work with. Oh, so fantastic. it's a varied day. We have a varied yeah. day. Uh, so, uh, as an example, uh, PSS calls that uh, uh, high severity uh, uh, bugs being found, they might uh, land with your team, uh, depending on what it is. They might, yeah. I mean, it's um, uh, the the support guys have a very well-trodden path of escalation. So, um, they have different levels of support engineers, escalation engineers. When something ends up as a, a bug or... Um, we might, or maybe a DCR thing called a design change request, or an RFC, a request for comment, because uh, you know an answer is required. Then it ends up in this morning daily triage, which I I try and attend as often as I can. And so you know, either a, a customer case will end up as a bug. Here is my, you know, here, here's the details of the bug, and then we have to decide whether we're going to accept or reject the bug, or postpone sometimes. Um, or maybe a customer wants a specific response to uh, why does the product do X, and the support engineers can't answer that. So that comes up into you know my team as uh, one of the teams that would deal with questions like that. So so we we kind of act if you like as an escalation point to both uh, the field and the support side. Um, we're involved in that process heavily, trying to kind of help be the, if you like the final um, the final point really of of escalation so the book stops with you well <laughs> yeah sometimes you know but it, it is an interesting one that um you know that sometimes if i answer you know if i answer a question that becomes the answer for the question and so um i do we do think carefully about when a customer says i want this you know why doesn't the product do that or why did you design it this way the answer that we give is pretty much the final answer. So uh, a, uh, a bit like they uh, want to go email Steve Ballmer, you know, <laughs> and, so, then, uh, and then it's a different answer. Who knows? So a bit, a bit like uh, where blogs like myself might reference someone like Ross Smith to say, you know, Win Exchange team no longer recommend network load balancing. Uh, it, that's the, the kind of thing that you guys decide that. And uh, if you're prepared to make it public, then that then people like us go, yep, that's the answer. Uh, they said so, <laughs> uh, and we're sticking by that. Yeah, so Ross, Ross and I are in the same team. We're peers within the same team, um, yeah. and we have some other um, people like Jeff Meeliff and Brian Day and Ben Appleby in the same team who all have, we all have 
quite specific areas of knowledge. So Ross, as probably you know, is, is well, actually, he's a bit of a brainiac of all things, to be perfectly honest, right? But uh, he's very his kind of core focus tends to be around storage and uh, the, the calculator, obviously, and all of that kind of stuff. On storage and DAGs and HA, he's, you know, brilliant. I tend to focus on the client access, security, publishing stuff. Jeff focuses around uh, scale, performance, uh, all of that kind of area. Brian, he does most things he's a very smart guy as well ben does the hybrid stuff so we, we kind of each have different areas so when something comes in it it sort of tends to naturally fall into the person who has you know some experience or, or understanding of that area but yeah when uh, when when somebody in our team says yep you know the processor ratio is x that's probably somebody you know we're helping deliver that guidance so yes no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's why we haven't seen things like a, a mailbox calculator yet for 2013, because someone's got to get that answer 100% right. Well, yeah, uh, Ross is working on it. Ross will be ga Ross is gathering data from our own implementations and tap customers, early adopting customers, um, other testing that we're doing, and the, and the calculator is one of those things where um, it's it. You know, you have to have see real world experience. You can only lab lab experience is only part of the story. Um, you know, customers use Exchange in very interesting and different ways, and so we have to gather and analyze data from a broad set of customers because we're making statements around what we recommend you do, which we know you use and will can people will continue to use. And so we, we do want to be certain that the information we give out is reliable and, and well thought through. Um, but it's a balance because, you know, people are desperate for information, but we kind of are on the side of we'd rather be sure what we're giving is correct rather than just throw some numbers out there, you know, and yeah. be proven wrong. Yeah, because uh, customers are going to go out and spend a lot of money based on this, aren't they? Yeah, you know, you make you make decisions and, and you know, you later turns out you were wrong right you know because yeah. that's kind of the way things go sometimes but um we we do our very best to sort of be sure that the numbers we do give out are true and correct but reserve the right to change them <laughs> <laughs> uh so thank you very much for that introduction greg then and uh, uh first we'll move on to our top stories this week uh and uh, we've got a few around uh, link uh first of all uh link uh, is now under the the department of Skype, uh, which seems a a big change. Uh, everything was brought under Office previously, and uh, Link's gone off again. So, uh, what what do people think about that? I think that's a nat natural evolution that they combine those two products uh, into the same product group. Especially since we're looking at, you know, how can we get the two of them to talk to each other uh, via federation? So, natural choice. I wonder whether that's going to end up in a, a Skype professional or something like that, or another rebranding. Uh, but it's uh, it, it's an interesting change, uh, and it comes at a, a strange time because also in the news this week is uh, Skype and some some very big vulnerability uh, that's uh, just been closed uh, that some Russian uh, hackers uh, have been apparently using for the last three months. So uh, it's good news and bad news then, by the sound of things. Uh, I would agree. Um, you know, I think that there's 
there's a big flux in, in the Skype product right now as they try to switch things over to uh, using Microsoft accounts and that whole integration as well as federation. So um, I, I like the fact that they jumped on it very quickly and uh, issued a zero-day fix. Uh, a little bit of heartburn for some of the users, but um, you know I, I think there was a positive reaction by Microsoft to uh, just washing the problem. Yeah, you, you can't complain at that. Uh, and uh, I think Skype has probably been getting a bit of a, a bigger uptake over the last few weeks anyway, uh, as people replace uh, the old uh, Windows Messenger with it as well. Uh, I know I've uh, made the switch over, and it's been a, you know, a, a fairly positive experience. Uh, you know, it does what, uh, what I expected it to do. Uh, so uh, I, I think... Uh, people are waiting to see this Skype federation. Uh, it's been in things like presentations from Microsoft. So uh, let's see how, how long that is. We, we don't have all the, the link guys on this week, uh, but I, I don't think there's anything more to report around things like link federation just yet, is there? Uh, some people have reported that once they combine their Microsoft accounts that they were able to connect to uh, Skype via federation. Um, yeah. I have not been able to validate that yet. Uh, it has not been working for me in that scenario. Um, so a little bit more testing to be done there. But they also did, you know, release the Skype uh, client for uh, for Windows 8 and Windows Phone 8, I should say, and uh, that's been getting some some pretty good uh, reviews as well. Uh, the the other big release of this week is uh, a whole ream of new patches for Microsoft Exchange as well. Uh, so are they still update rollups or cumulative updates? Uh, I don't know, but uh, update rollup 5 has been released. Uh, I've been having a, a look through the dissection by Tony Redmond, and there doesn't seem to be anything major in there that, that's jumped out of me. Uh, we've got uh, one of the right people to tell us whether there is anything, uh, any reasons to implement it uh you know as soon as you've been able to test it uh but has, has anyone else found anything interesting inside those update roll-ups uh, i know uh, michelle had a, a few questions around the the version threes well um i found the list to be quite big this time with the number of fixes in it um compared to some of the other ones so um it's it's it struck me actually that there were that many fixes but yeah would, it, it isn't necessarily bad. It's a good thing that they get so, uh, that they get fixed anyway. Um, and the other thing that I was actually laughing about is there is a fix for an issue where a uh, integration using VS API is causing Storage to, to crash. Um, so uh, it made me laugh because if you know that it Microsoft actually did the good thing to remove the VS API from Exchange 2013, um, and seeing that bugs still come in at this stage in Exchange 2010 still prove that they might made the right call. Uh, Michelle, you were you were asking about why there's a version three, weren't you? Yeah, that's not on the roll-up five uh, thing, but um, perhaps our, our guest uh, has an idea on why there's a version three, which mentions the same security advisory has been implemented in version 3 but was also mentioned as being implemented in version 2 of the same rollup. Do you have anything on that uh, Greg perhaps to share with us? No, I'm not not exactly sure I understand uh, why that is to be perfectly honest, no. This is version 3 of rollup 4 you're talking about, yeah? Uh, yeah, version 3, so this, it's for 2007 as as well as okay yeah no I, I i have to say i'm not actually that sure exactly why that is i'm afraid but of course it's worth putting them on if uh, 
if it so takes your fancy. Uh, I suppose you can only go with the recommendations then. Uh, but uh, the update rollout five is is the big one, really, isn't it? Uh, but uh, the the main thing that it doesn't have, uh, and none of these update rollups do, is uh, provide that uh, 2013 coexistence just yet. Uh, we're going to have to wait uh, a little longer to see those, and uh, as, uh, unless Greg's going to give us more information, which I I am not banking on, uh, we're expecting that before the end of the first quarter, perhaps the end of the second quarter, uh, 2013. Uh, so I, I could blame. I, I could say my microphone went mute, but you, no, you're absolutely right. Um, for 2010, Service Pack Three will be uh, the first half of the next calendar year. Um, and uh, we'll be announcing the 2007 uh, coexistence requirements uh, within the same time frame. I know that's a very long time frame. I think we'll, you know, we're doing all we can to make it sooner rather than later. Let me put it that way. But you know, um, software is an ongoing process, so until the thing is actually baked and ready for download, it isn't entirely finished. And uh, I guess that the. the the other thing is, uh, even if everything was out there right now, people wouldn't necessarily be able to start moving to it because there's backup products and other integrations, uh, and some of those can take a while. I remember EMC uh, Networker took at least a year to to get ready uh, to backup DAGs uh, after Exchange 2010 came out. Yeah, I mean, there, there's the thing. There's a lot of other dependencies that the customers typically have, and, you know, uh, now's the time they should really be talking to those vendors and asking what their plans are for support with 2013 and, uh, you know, applying pressure if necessary on them. You know, we work with quite a few of those vendors within our TAP program, those that are very uh, proactive and want to support the product. But obviously there are, you know, lots of smaller organizations or companies that people have add-ins from, you know, for exchange. Um, and if they're really only able to get their hands on exchange when we RTM it, they're typically going to be a little bit behind the curve. So early adoption is, is kind of a nice idea, but I think most customers tend to have a little bit of a process to go through before they can really start moving mailboxes in anger, you know? Yeah. Moving along, uh, I think we're going to go, uh, now we're talking to Greg uh, a little bit more, I think we'll go into some of the questions that uh, we've got for him from various co-hosts. Uh, is that okay with you, Greg? Sure, fire away. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, Michelle, uh, you were uh, asking really about this first question, uh, about uh, CAS and, and load balancing. Do you want to take that one? Yeah, sure. Um, Greg, for the... In Exchange 2013, the CAS setup is stateless and we use uh, L4 loan balances. But um, looking at them as stateless, um, how does it work in relation with authentication? Is there any impact on load or overhead when sizing these uh, CAS boxes? Okay, good question. So, um, so it's kind of... There's a few things. That, let me let me take a step back for a second. So on the on the CAS, just to, uh, CAS 2013, we now basically have a uh, a very thin layer of software that really does nothing more than uh, authenticates a connection, determines where it should send the connection, and then sends the connection onwards. It really doesn't do anything more than that. 
the question, you know, I guess the question if relating to, you know, how, how the, and we'll come back to the load balancing piece. Let's think about the authentication overhead piece for a second, right? Any, even in previous versions of Exchange, every single connection that came in was authenticated. So whether it's a single connection coming in from an active sync device to an individual CAS, it's authenticated, or whether it's half a dozen different connections coming in from an Outlook Anywhere client, each one of those is, is authenticated. Each HTTP stream is authenticated. So there really isn't any difference between authentication uh, 2010, 2007, and, and before, and 2013. Every connection is authenticated. The only difference is 2013 uses that authentication to determine where it's going to point the, the, the connection to, rather than a generic client access array or a generic load balancing kind of point. It determines the user is authenticated. It figures out where their mailbox is, and then it proxies the connection directly to the mailbox server. So what that does is it suddenly then uh, brings up the load balancing piece that so kind of neatly leads into to that, which is if you don't have to think about where the, you know, if, if, if Exchange already knows where the user is, where their mailbox is, then it doesn't, and every single connection is authenticated, then it really doesn't matter which CAS handles the initial connection because they ultimately are all going to end up on the same back-end mailbox server. So it gives you this ability to do a layer four type load balancing, which is, you know, if I have three different CAS servers sitting in front of my one mailbox server, for example, or my one mailbox, you know, my, my mailbox server with my mailbox on it that I'm trying to access. And if I spread my Outlook Anywhere connections randomly across those three CAS servers, or CAS, sorry, Ross hates it when I say CAS server because it's a bit of an anomaly, really. Um, if I spread the connections across the three CAS, because each connection is authenticated and they all end up on the same mailbox server, it really doesn't matter that the connections are all coming through different CASs. And so that layer gives us the ability to do layer four. We don't really care what the traffic is actually trying to do. We just have to authenticate it and point it at the right mailbox server. And the fact that my connections are spread across all the servers doesn't make any difference anymore, which obviously is a difference from previous versions of Exchange where because CAS was doing, you know, business logic was actually doing stuff rather than just proxying a connection, um, if all the connections didn't land on the same CAS, the software couldn't quite, you know, figure out how to do OA properly, for example, or Outlook Anywhere because the connections didn't all end up on the same CAS. So now because we've moved that um, sort of termination point, if you like, away from CAS right down to the mailbox level, we can go to a layer four model, faster, cheaper, easier. So are there any other uh, methods that were considered at an early stage, like uh, sharing a session cache, for example, between CAS servers? Um, so it's an interesting idea. So. Uh, Yes, and there are certain kind of aspects already of 2010 where we actually share information around between servers. So, in fact, in 2010, Outlook Anywhere, for example, um, if you did happen, even though the connection should really all come to the same CAS, if you, if you did, in fact, use something like SSL ID-based load balancing and distribute the connections across all the CAS, the CAS would actually communicate with each other 
and corral all the sessions back into the same CAS for onward connectivity, right? So we already have examples in the software of how we we do have some kind of um, uh, software smarts built in to try and bring sessions back together. The downside of that is it's complex. We're adding complexity. And so the, the 2013 architectural change did, in fact, allow us to get away from complexity and, in fact, do a simpler story. But the, the, you know, the, there is actually, to answer your question as well, there's one other thing. Um, OWA, you might, here's an interesting one. So I think we all know if you do OWA and you do forms-based auth, you're, you have a cookie. The cookie is your authentication token, right? Yeah. And you might, you might say, well, if I, because in 2010, if you're, if you're authenticated to one CAS and you have a authentication cookie in your way and your connection, because the load balancer moves you away to another CAS, you'd have to re-authenticate, right? And we've seen that some, you know, you see that sometimes where your connection gets shifted from CAS to CAS and you end up having suddenly forms-based all three appears and you're being asked to re-authenticate. Well, we've done away with that in 2013 as well because what we now do for authentication is if you've installed the same certificate on all of the CAS 2013 servers, the same SSL certificate, we use that certificate's uh, private key, public key actually, sorry, public key to encrypt your authentication cookie. And we give that back to you. And then what happens is it doesn't actually matter when your browser hands back the cookie with every request. It doesn't actually matter if you hit a different CAS because all the different CASs all share the same certificate. So they can all decrypt it and the auth token within it is valid. So, in fact, it's a bit of a maybe a hard concept to get your head around. But if you think about this, the fact that you can do FBA across a bunch of CAS, and if your connection gets spread around and distributed around between them all, it doesn't make any difference. You are still authenticated for every connection to every CAS. All right, okay. That's quite interesting, actually, because I, I was wondering what you were going to say about that. I thought I, I thought you were going to say it was stored in the mailbox or something like that. No. If you think about it, so <laughs> the prereq that's much, is... That's all, very clever. Yeah, it is very smart. So all you have to do is just make sure you use the same SSL certificate on all the different CAS servers, and it just works. There's nothing to configure. It just works. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Okay. So that so that does reduce the overhead quite a lot because it may, doesn't really matter where it goes to. Uh, so going on from that, where I would would ask then, do we need load balancers uh, as as much? Is DNS round robin a possible solution? And you know, uh, I, I know that there's going to be some great solutions. I don't want to upset Kemp or anyone like that. Uh, but uh, is is it a possibility? So. Um, the reason you do still need a load balancer is for availability, really, not for distribution or affinity. I mean, you, okay, so there's two reasons, really, I guess. Availability and for uh, even distribution of connections. So the, the problem with just DNS round robin is that DNS round robin can work if the servers that are sitting behind it, in effect, are either up or hard down because if a server is hard down and let's say dns returns your browser an ip address and the server is completely unavailable your browser actually goes back for another address most people don't realize that but it 
actually does. So you, ca- you could, at a very basic level, use DNS round robin. The problem, the more common problem with Exchange and why we don't recommend it as a high availability solution, DNS round robin, for example, or, or Windows Network Low Balancing, don't recommend either for high availability, is they're not very good when it comes to a grey failure. So the server is up, but a service is down. So IIS is down or an app pool is down or something like that. And so you, you, you end up in a situation there where the client gets an IP address. He can reach the host, but he can't reach the service. Well, DNS round robin isn't going to help you. It will keep handing that same IP address out to clients all day long, and clients will be stuck. So that's where... If you want to do high availability, any form of high availability or, or distribution of load across a group of CASs where a hardware load balancer is still the right answer and still our recommendation. So uh, I, I take it Microsoft have been working with uh, uh, the likes of Kemper, F5 and so on to uh, define the, the best way of, of monitoring services because it uh, traditionally, the things like Kemp have uh, suggested using individual services, uh, different virtual IPs, uh, with different service monitoring. So one for ActiveSync, one for OWA, and so on. Mm. Inter- interesting point. I don't know if you read um, Tony Redmond's. Tony Redmond blogged about this the other day, actually, because um, I, I talked about this in a session at, uh, in a, at the experts conference in where was it? Barcelona. Um, a couple of weeks ago because the downside of going to layer four, if there is a downside, is that from a low balancer perspective, because you're no longer doing SSL termination at the low balancer, the low balancer has no idea what endpoint you're actually trying to reach, whether it's OA or OAB or auto-discover or whatever it is, right? Yeah. The low balancer doesn't know that at layer four. And so what can happen is if you just use one namespace, mail.contoso.com, you point it at the load balancer and you tell the load balancer, I've got two CAS servers, two CAS behind. It doesn't really know what the incoming traffic is for. And so it's very hard for the load balancer to do an app level health check on Exchange to make sure that the app it's trying to reach on the particular CAS it picked is available. So that's very difficult to do when you have a single namespace at layer four. The other option is layer seven at the other end of the scale, if you like, in terms of complexity, where you have SSL termination at the low balancer. The low balancer knows exactly the endpoint that the client needs, and so it can do a per-protocol health check before it sends on the traffic. What you're mentioning, what you've mentioned, is is what is what I discussed at this this event as a potential other solution, which is. Don't use mail.contosa.com for everything at layer four. Why not have mail.contosa.com for OA and have eas.contosa.com for active sync and oab.contosa.com for the downloads? And each of those resolve to different IP addresses on the load balancer. So, okay, you need more IP addresses, but and more SSL names on the certificate or names on the SSL certificate, but let's not fret about that for the moment. But what it means is that the load balancer now sees the incoming connection at layer four, but because of the virtual IP that it's coming in on, it it knows you're after the offline address book. And so the health check for that particular pro, uh, listener, VIP, that it's got, checks the OAB health on the target servers. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and this is all the sort of stuff that you could be doing with 2010 at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, well, at 2010, you'd have to do layer 7. You could do, I mean, I guess you could do this absolutely with 2010 at layer 4 if you really wanted to. Um, but it, it um, but given that you need affinity with 2010 as well, layer 7 actually made more sense because you had to have kind of, you know, the same client coming back to the same CAS. Yeah. So now we're 2013 where you don't need affinity, but you do want per protocol health awareness, then maybe having multiple namespaces is an interesting way of solving the problem. Certainly worth a consideration, I think. Yeah, and it's certainly something where a reverse proxy in front could help consolidate the number of IPs that you have. Uh, but I'll ask more about the, that reverse proxies in a bit. Uh, okay. but, uh, but I won't go into too much detail on it because uh, uh, there's not much uh, anyone can do about that. Uh, uh, so, M Michelle, did you have any more questions around load balancing? Because you, you were particularly keen on, on asking about affinity as well, weren't you? Uh, and I, I think we got that pretty much covered. Was there anything else? No, nothing else, Steve. Thanks. Well, perhaps I do still have a question. Um, with regards to using Kerberos with um, Layer 4 then against the CAS, as I understood from your session uh, in Barcelona, Greg, you said that now Kerberos is used against the HTTP endpoint. Um, but how does that impact configuring Kerberos for Layer 4 load balancing? I can imagine that you sh you'd have to register other um, uh, SPNs then. Okay. Uh, wow. Good question. So, um, so we're, we're going to ship, if we haven't already, uh, memory fails me, the, uh, an updated script for enabling Kerberos for um, client access servers for Exchange. It's a, it's a different, you know, it's slightly different. We're, we're really, what we're doing now is regis registering uh, an HTTP SPN which will be using, again, the, uh, the shared account, the ASA account, um, across all of the CAS servers. And so you're actually, because now Outlook client connections are HTTP only, you do, you, and I'm thinking out loud here, you would not need to register SBNs for Exchange, MDP, and RFR, and AB like you did before. You'd just be registering the HTTP SPN. And then Outlook would be using the HTTP SP, SPN for the Kerberos connection. Uh, against Exchange. So uh, the script that we'll ship, that if we haven't already shipped it, is going to enable you to do that. But I know we're already using that internally and no issues. So you have no problem using Kerberos. It still only be internal. Because obviously, in order for Kerberos to work, you have to be able to reach the, the KCD. So um, from an external perspective, you'd still be doing basic or NTLM at the HTTP layer, whereas internally, you could do Kerberos at the HTTP layer because you'll be internal and can reach the key distribution center and all that good stuff. Okay, thanks. And Michael, do you want to move on to the next question for us? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, Greg, what we were wondering is, um, is there a feature or what is the feature in Exchange 2013 that you're the most proud of, actually? <laughs> um, well, right. So, obviously, am I allowed a little bit of self uh, congratulation here is, is that is that the done thing that's why we have you on <laughs> all right excellent right um well <laughs> then I'll, I'll give you the the answer of personally and then uh, you know as a product I think so um probably the, the for me individually the address book policy work and the hosting work that I've done over the last probably 18 months so 
it's very satisfying um, to me having been uh, basically told by my general manager, like he, he kind of stopped by one day and he's kind of knocked on the door and he says, gal segmentation, what's that about? Figure that one out. And then kind of left with a smile on his face. And that was how the whole gal segmentation address book policy piece of work I've been doing started. Um, so I made a point now, whenever I see him coming at me smiling, I always run a mile. Um, but seeing a feature that you've kind of uh, designed a functional spec, how should this thing work? Um, working through a development and a testing cycle and then delivering address book policies into the product and then standing up and talking about them and seeing people use them is incredibly satisfying. I love that. Then when you hear there's a bug or something, that's incredibly scary because <laughs> you think, heck, what are you <laughs> right? um, So personally kind of delivering a feature, actually seeing something you've really worked on turn up, whether it's a small radio button or a bigger feature, is, is immensely satisfying. Um, and, and the ABP work continues forward, and it led into the kind of hosting guidance, multi-tenancy, and, and a lot of that other stuff, which I'm very, very proud of, of doing as well. I think from a broader product perspective, um, the evolution of DAG over the last uh, few versions of Exchange to what we have today is something that I think is uh, an amazing uh, technological achievement, which takes kind of uh, the, you know, really gives us some amazing advanced functionality for availability and and wraps it all up inside uh, something that once you understand how the thing works is uh, is easy to use and, and provides a really high level of service. So I think personally ABPs and hosting uh, from a broader product, I think definitely DAGs I think are amazing. And I think we'd all agree because it's it's not only has given us a, a lot of work over the last few years, uh, it, it also gives a, the customer a solution that works, is reliable, that it can be confident in. Uh, and those massive I.O. reductions as well have opened up the opportunities. Yeah, and, and, and you know, that's a really good point. I mean, the I.O. reduction is incredible. When you couple it then with this high availability model is, um, is, uh, is really a, it's a, it's a double win. And, and trying to explain to customers that it's kind of interesting how it used to be in, in the world of clustering, you know, when we had kind of, if you like, a more kind of old school cluster of exchange. Yeah. When a database failed over, the boss wanted to know why. And trying to figure that one out, you know, um, was, was like a big deal. Now, database failovers are normal and expected and standard operation procedure, right? So... It's a slight, it's a shift, and it and it means you know you can much cheaper storage. You expect disks to fail, and you plan for it, and it becomes a normal event rather than a uh, an out of band event. So I think we've really in that storage DAG I/O piece, brilliant pro progress in the last few years. I think brilliant. Yeah, I mean, there's still customers out there who want to do patching, all the maintenance, moving databases over out of hours. But it, it it's opened up the opportunity where you haven't had to do that. Uh, I remember a few years ago with Exchange 2007, uh, I, at that time I used to have a, a team of people that worked for me, and I'd have them coming in at you know, 6, 7 o'clock in the morning to, to patch a CCR cluster. 
and it would be a nervous process for them. They'd have to work very hard to get that done. Uh, and then there'd be that 15, 20 minutes for each cluster where things would be failing over and they'd be crossing the fingers. And that, you know, that kind of stuff is, is for, for customers that really embrace it, a, a thing of the past. Uh, and all that complexity around uh, clustering is just something they, they don't have to think about anymore. It was weird for me a few weeks ago to go to a customer and uh, uh, be decommissioning uh, uh, some 2003 clusters. And it's, it was quite a while since I, I'd had to mess around with the, the cluster management. I'd almost forgotten how, uh, because you just don't really have to, to do that so much anymore. Uh, so they are big improvements. I think uh, we, we can be proud of, of your achievements, uh, uh, and, uh, and they certainly make uh, our day-to-day jobs uh, a lot easier. I couldn't agree more. Definitely. So work that has been got, has gone into the products uh, since the last few releases actually um, put me out of work. <laughs> no, no, really, but just well, that, that's the best theory. So much isn't more it? interesting. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is different work. Different, different work, definitely. That's uh, it. But be- better, better, much, much more fun than. But you know, there, there was a thing. It you know we quite often say you know Exchange two thousand and three had to be a storage expert. In Exchange 2007, you had to be a certificate expert, and with 2010, you had to be a load balancing expert. Right, so, you know, the skill sets required to consult and deliver Exchange have changed through the years. I, I'm not exactly sure what the uh, expertise for 2013 is going to be yet. I don't know if any of you have an opinion. It's a little early to say, maybe, but... Uh, I think I read it's around compliance, really, isn't it? Good point. That yeah, definitely, definitely could be a contender, yeah. Well, I heard there was a, a rumor at Mac that said that we would be experts at uh, geo load balancing, but <laughs> I I don't think you need to be an expert. I don't, yeah. I don't think it's as hard as as uh, as you might think. It, it really will. I mean, you know, if you get a connection to CAS twenty thirteen, it will get you to your mailbox. You don't have to worry about it all that much. So that's kind of a core design principle of of CAS twenty thirteen. It's interesting. We'll we'll see how uh, uh, what sort of things come on the market for geo load balancing, because uh, there's a few things out there. But uh, you know, virtual appliances that uh, can do it simply. Good guides for for doing it with open source stuff as well uh, are probably going to be quite useful. Uh, but moving on to the next subject, then uh, TMG. Uh, le- less of a pat on the back here. Uh, uh, one thing that uh, is, is affecting proposals that consultants like myself right, and uh, things that customers want to buy as well is dropping TMG entirely uh, for, for new purchase. And I, I've heard a, a few different comments about that. And first of all, wonder what your take was, Greg. Interesting. So, I, I you know, I have a, a bit of a vested interest in TMG, UAG and stuff because, you know, I wrote the white papers for publishing exchange with them. So uh, I, I was a little disappointed. To be personally, I'm a little disappointed that TMG has uh, stopped being sold because a lot of exchange customers have made good use of TMG over the last few years. And it it's a product that does a great job publishing Exchange, um, and uh, and I think for most customers it's a, a good insurance policy, if you like. So it's a so it's a disappointment, I think, that TMG has been pulled from the market. But kind of here's how I look at this at the moment. The first thing is that just because we've stopped selling it doesn't mean that TMG is no longer going to work. Right? It won't stop working on December the first. It will continue to work, and so. If you already have a TMG deployment today, 
you will still have a TMG deployment next year, and you can keep on TMG until it runs out of support in, I don't know, whenever, 2015. And and so the first thing probably to do is don't panic because uh, it will work with Exchange 2013. I have a blog post which I've written. It's sitting in my inbox at the moment waiting for publication uh, on how to configure TMG to publish Exchange 2013. So that will be coming out very soon. Um, so that's the first thing. I think I think uh, UAG as a as an alternative option. Some customers already deployed UAG. UAG can publish Exchange. It can't publish Exchange 2013 properly just yet. There's going to be an update for UAG for that. Um, and then there are customers who don't do TMG UAG or anything at all. They either use something else or they do no pre-authentication at all. Um, we're we're kind of you know in a in a place at the moment where um, I think holding pattern rather than run out and making a choice and throwing out TMG and choosing something else. I think most customers should be thinking about if they already have something that will function, then they're good for the time being, and they should then think about what they want to do in the future going forward. Yeah, I think uh, one thing I've heard, I don't know whether it's, uh, is it attributed to you? If you if they stop making your car tomorrow, you wouldn't have to stop driving it. Well, yeah, I think I came out with this silly story somewhere, because you know how, you know, boys like a car analogy. And so <laughs> it, it was, you know, I... I, I so the girls. Well, that is true. Um, but, you know, uh, and so just because the car, you know, the, or the TV that you've bought has been superseded by a new model, all right, maybe the TV's a different one because people do go out and buy new TVs a heck of a lot more frequently probably than cars. But the point is that, you know, the thing you've bought has been superseded by a new model or has stopped being made. Well, it doesn't mean it just stops working. And and you can still get parts and service and fill it up with fuel. And you can do, you know, those things. And so until you decide what you want to replace it with, as long as it does the job that you need it to do, meets your requirements... I would say stick with it. I mean, my take on that is, uh, say Ford stopped making Focus, uh, and they said you can only buy a, a you know big people carrier now. Uh, well, that's great if you've already got a Focus, but not so good if that was all your budget could afford and all you needed. True. I mean, so I guess, what, and and if I can read through your cunning analogy there, I'm guessing that would be TMG versus UAG, right? So because yeah, UAG yeah. is a more expensive product for sure. Um, the other option, let me throw this one out there, is no pre-authentication at all, which is you have a load balancer, you put the load balancer, you hang it directly on the Internet, and the servers that sit behind it are your servers. Well, your, your load balancer is acting as a basic level packet filter at that stage. It's, it's allowing connections to TCP443 to exchange, right? Yeah, And so you're not opening up the endpoint mapper and a whole bunch of other silly stuff. You're just allowing connections to TCP443 to exchange. And so what's the – let me ask you the question. What, what's the risk in doing that, would you say, from a, your perception? Well, it, we've got the pre-authentication at the reverse proxy level in on the, the new CAS – well, CAFE roles, haven't we? So – so the, the CAS role is not going to let any connection that isn't authenticated come through. The only, the only risk there would be that a denial of service, some kind of auth attack. Well, here's an interesting one as well. There's two sides to that. One which would be a sheer volume of traffic 
hitting your server and taking the server down, right? And for that, intrusion detection systems and there is other elements you could introduce that maybe would help deal with that, mitigate that, maybe even in the load balancer. The other risk that people often see with that is uh, something called account lockouts. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, we have, we've been telling people for 15 years, don't use account lockouts yet. Many customers do. They say, you know, three wrong attempts, I'm going to lock out the part. I'm going to lock your account out. Well, I personally think that's pretty silly to do. An easy denial of service attack. Completely. A kid could write a script to do that. Yeah, and, and given that these days, you know, people tend to make their UPN, their SMTP address, the same, so that they can log on to OWA and ActiveSync using effectively their email address. That becomes their UPN. Well, now I know their UPN. I can try and log into OWA multiple times as that user, and I can lock their account out and laugh myself silly. So, you know, I think if you don't use account lockout policies, you instead monitor. You, if you're going to if you're going to get rid of pre-authentication, and I'm not suggesting that's what customers do. I'm, I'm suggesting some customers might consider it a possibility if they have the technical and operational uh, capability to monitor for bad behavior and know what to do about it. All right, so if they're monitoring for intrusion attempts and denial of service and they know what to do when there looks like a, an automated password attempt is being, then maybe they've got the sophistication already to do away with pre-authentication. Yeah, I mean, a lot of customers do this at the firewall level and have TMG sitting uh, single-armed in the perimeter network so it's gonna it's gonna hit a firewall uh, that may already be doing some of this technology anyway yeah exactly and so I think at the moment what I what I say then kind of you know is what, what do we say to customers today I think it's definitely if you have a solution already that you know works stick with it most customers are in that position there are some who will be you know, because most, if people are now looking to publish something to the internet that they haven't done before, then the TMG option has just been taken off the table. I agree. Uh, and this is going to go for, you know, Exchange 2010 deployments for at least the next six months. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, um, and, I, and I think as well, I think the market will, will fill the need. If there really is a need, I think we'll fill the market itself whether that's us or partners will i think develop something to to fulfill that need that typically is what happens in a free economy uh, we've just got to hope they uh, get cracking on it then yeah i hope so I, it's you know it's I, I think for most exchange customers you know tmg or something is a bit of an insurance policy it's something they can put in front of exchange to let them sleep well at night um and, and for that i I, I'm, you know, I think it's, it's a good answer. Um, so I think maybe it's a little too early to be sure, but I, I, I'm pretty sure over the next six months, I think I think there'll be some changes or some changes in the market, and I think we'll we'll have we should have the same discussion in six months, and I reckon we'll probably have a clearer answer on what the right thing to do will be. Yeah, I mean, right now this is how it's going to affect me. Uh, I've been handed a project from a, a guy that's left. He's done the pre-sales on it, uh, which is where he goes, talks to the customer, uh, designs a, a proposal for a solution, and uh, in there is TMG. Uh, that's been sold to the customer, and it's going in and making sure that when when I go and see him next week, making sure that things like the licensing are sorted now rather than later, because it might not be implemented until mid-December. Uh, if they hang hang around too long, then 
uh, you're going to be in that horrible position where you've got to look for a solution on the back foot. Or if uh, if uh, my ex-colleague has sold them TMG as, as a fantastic solution, uh, am I going to go back on that and say, well, uh, I still think it's decent, but perhaps it's not so essential as it was. It's, I have to re, re re-examine their requirements, have a look at what's in place, what's the security policy, why was it specified in the first place, what can we find to to replace it? And it, It's a difficult position to be in, and I don't think I'm going to be a, alone in that position myself either. So No, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I've also, I do have um, a document circulating inside, internally at the moment to kind of discuss what this means to us as a team, because, you know, we, we have, ex- you know, Microsoft as a company has decided to do this with TMG and we as Exchange, you know, we have a vested interest in seeing our customers successfully get Exchange published to the internet. You know, every time I hear of a customer who's like, yeah, we don't publish anything to the internet. I, you know, we make people VPN in first, right? I cringe because I just think, oh, come on, you know. There are ways and means that we can secure published exchange publishing to the internet you know, well. And so I want customers to do it. So I can, uh, I can tell you that, you know, we, we, um, we do take seriously that what this means to us and we're still, uh, working through what, what our recommendation will be. But I think I've given you probably a, a fair idea of yeah. what I feel about it at the moment. Yeah. This isn't meant to be a, a bashing per se. Uh, so, uh, but it is just genuine interest and thinking, thinking ahead of, of, you know, what, what what people like myself and and other customers are gonna gonna do, and it, it's good to hear that there's that there's thought inside Microsoft uh, on what the solutions are gonna be, uh, and of course we know that there's UAG, and that's that's a solution that we we've got customers who are taking advantage of the, the portal features and find it a very successful solution uh, because it does more than just publishing stuff to the internet and uh, uh, and connection filtering and so on. It, it does all the the, the stuff that uh, Citrix Access Gateways tend to do as well. Like application publishing and uh, secure publishing of other in- internal websites through a, a, a great portal interface. So it's it's got to be worth uh, worth a look at anyway. Uh, but it's 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 got to fit the bill at the same time. And that's probably TMG done to death. And on to our next question. Uh, it's around hosting, and this one uh, is from Dave, who's not on the episode today, uh, but he's, he's got a question really around, are there any special considerations that hosters have to take uh, when transitioning from Exchange 2010 to Exchange 2013? Uh, or is it basically the same as, as on-premises? Uh, that's a good question. So, so fundamentally, nothing really different. Um, the... Uh, uh, the, the process, the steps, so we, we documented how to go from uh, 2007 with GAL segmentation to 2010 when we did the 2010 SP2 hosting guidance. Um, we're not going to redo those steps for 2007 straight to 2013. Uh, the, the steps are pretty much the same. Nothing really changes in that regard. Um, most, of the, most of the heavy lifting is done going from 2007 to 10, whether it's HMC 2007 or 2007 with ACL-based GAL segmentation, any of those things, they're, there's, they're a bit harder to get out of. And we did do some work publishing some guidance on that. If you were to go straight from 2007 to 2013, as I said, we're not going to be publishing guidance specifically on that scenario. But what I will say is that 
Um, if you use the 2007 to 10 guidance, you're pretty much going to be good, I would say. Um, and, I, and I say that with a caveat that I haven't tested it, not, plan, not planning on testing it, but fundamentally and architecturally, it seems to make sense that it would be pretty much the same. A, uh, a 2010 SP2 based hosting platform using addressable policies and other stuff straight to 2013 should be a very straightforward process. Um, 2013 supports addressable policies just as 2010 did. So the directory side is, uh, is good. We, we were, I was hoping to make some changes around AVPs in 2013, uh, to some improvements and we, we, we haven't really changed anything around how they work. We were going to make one improvement, but we realized it, it, it might break 2010. So I've kind of decided probably not to do that for the time being. Um, and we are, uh, going to be, publishing updated hosting and multi-tenancy guidance for 2013, probably around the end of the year, um, as soon as I get it written <laughs> and edited and out. So um, it, it's not fundamentally different 2007 to 10 compared to 2007 to 13, and 2010 to 2013 should be pretty straightforward, I would say. Uh, one thing that's not specifically on the list, but uh, around hosting, uh, something that uh, was asked at a Microsoft event the other day, but there wasn't any any particular uh, in detail answer. Uh, and it's it's around hosters who are looking to build their own Office 365. Is that something that's going to be easier in Exchange 2013? Good question. So uh, I normally I normally answer the, okay. I'll answer the question in a couple of ways. So, no, nothing is fundamentally going to change that would make that easier. We're not shipping Office 365 on a on a DVD or probably a Blu-ray because right, it's quite a lot. Um, we're, we're not shipping it as an installable product. We have no plans to do so, um, and we haven't. Our strategy within Exchange is unchanged than from the strategy we announced um, a year or so ago, which was. Uh, you can use the on-prem product, you can use AVPs and a bunch of configuration, white paper, and you should be good. Nothing has changed in 2013. There is one thing that we are doing in 2013 that hosters and those doing kind of a multi-tenancy environment will like. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet because the code is not yet checked in. And... A feature is not real until code actually exists. So uh, I'm going to have to plead the fifth on that one. Um, but we, we, so we, we are doing one thing that I think people will really appreciate. Um, apart from that, we're not really changing anything. The other aspect of that, to, to answer your question, is, you know, I want to build my own Office 365-like service. And I quite often, when I hear that, respond with, um, no, you don't. You want to build something that that differentiates yourself from Office 365, because if all you're going to do is Office this offer the same as Office 365, you will have a tough job competing. If I'm brutally honest, on price and scale and whatever else, right? Well, th this question I, I think came from one of the largest uh, uh, outsourcers in the world, so they're probably uh, going to be all right on that. Okay, that sort of respect. But, but you know, why why would you want to compete with exactly the same services as us? You know, what what if a customer's got a choice of you know box A and box B, and they're both absolutely identical? You know, you're you're 
it doesn't there's it's not a, it's not a, a consumer choice at that stage and so with the hosters that I have worked with over the last couple of years, when when this one comes up, I'll say to them, well, what can you do that we can't do? And whether that's third-party app integration, BlackBerry, or um, or they're offering things that we don't offer, public folders, for example, in 2010 SB2, they could do that. Set yourself apart from Office 365 by offering things that we don't offer. Don't just offer what we offer, you know, see what you can do over and above, because as a differentiator, you, you, you know, that's why customers would pick you rather than us. But frankly, I would rather somebody's mailbox is an exchange. I don't really care where it is, to be honest. <laughs> but personally, you know, if it's an Office 365 exchange mailbox or, or a hosting partner's exchange mailbox, as long as it's not on notes, <laughs> it's an exchange mailbox. Well, I'm happy with that. That's good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I seem to be coming across a, quite a few notes installs over the last week or so after having really? none. Yeah, I, I didn't and, think there were any more. And none of them want to move. Uh, I, I spent my weekend uh, in, in Glasgow. Uh, I do a bit of VMware stuff as well, uh, building out a virtual environment for Notes Traveler. Boy, you need a lot of stuff for that. Uh, just to just to emulate active sync and i'm sure they've just licensed the protocol as well looking at the way it works uh but uh uh yeah so that as long as you're not on notes uh you don't care then no exactly i just want it to be an exchange mailbox the rest of it is yeah. just merely geography <laughs> at this time we're actually seeing quite a lot of movement from lotus notes to uh, exchange or office 365 um i've i've done a a few projects in the past few months um, so uh, I actually see they're abandoning uh, the sinking ship um, which has been sinking for quite a long time to be brutally honest it's the applications that have always made uh, domino notes migrations typically very hard right I mean as a, as a mail service I don't think you know most domino shops have, have ever sort of uh, argued that their product is better where they've really succeeded is by building line of business applications in the notes client, running sales and order processing with notes. And so yeah. they're, they're the things that are hard to migrate, not Definitely. email, right? No, but email, let, let's let's face it, email is email. Um, so how, how hard can it be? Uh, although that I still <laughs> complain about the fact that um, they have recurring events with alternating dates um, and that's a pain to move to exchange but other than that email is pretty simple if you've got the right tooling but as you said applications they are they are a hell to migrate yeah. but I'll leave you with this uh, so a quote on Monday from a, a large customer that's moved to exchange the best thing we ever did was get rid of notes is what they said word for word uh, so uh, and they were proud to say that and and I think that's probably about it then for, for our questions. Uh, we haven't got many more topics today. Uh, the, the next thing I wanted to move on to was something, Michael, uh, I think you raised this, uh, and it was around uh, Office web apps. Yeah, so um, in Exchange 2013, if you want to do the uh, document viewing in OWA, for instance, then um, you'll need the Office web app server. And one thing that strikes me is that um, there isn't much real good info 
um, out there and there isn't a lot of emphasis on the Office web apps either um, because a lot of people I talk to don't even realize that they'll need the Office web app server to actually um, have the full functionality of Exchange um, but even so for Link uh, or for SharePoint for that matter. So um, yeah, basically it was it was kind of a call out to say, well, hey, don't forget about the Office web apps, um, because for sure, if I'm going to make a design of of Exchange 2013, um, I'll be including it by default just to make people. So, uh, so for those who don't know, what does Office web apps add to Exchange 2013? Um, well, as I said, it allows you to do the um, document previewing in OWA. So if you open OWA and you've got an email with attachments, uh, for instance, a Word document, it'll allow you to view that Word document uh, from your browser or even your PowerPoint presentation. Um, and prior to Exchange 2013, it was actually a component that was part of Exchange. Uh, so it was a third-party component, if I'm correct. So Oracle-based, um, is that right? Yeah, you, you know, the one that gave a lot of issues um, and that caused some update roll-up uh, roll-ups or fixes to, to come out for it um, due to the vulnerabilities that it had. So what they actually did is they took that out and replaced it with uh, the Office Web App Server, which is a good part because now they have control over over uh, the, the, the component that's responsible of doing that. But it's... Yeah, yet another server. Um, it's okay because you can share the Office web apps uh, between Exchange, Link, and SharePoint, and you need it anyway. But yeah, it's a bit confusing for some people. Um, and also configuration-wise, it, it could could have been better. The server itself, it's pretty easy to set up and it's pretty robust. There isn't anything much that you can do. So I'd almost say it's it's a bit appliance-alike. But um, I can't yeah, get it to install. <laughs> I spent the afternoon. Uh, yeah, trying to, I saw that. <laughs> I can't get it to. Um, so it just bombs out. I've like built machine after machine uh, from template and from scratch, and it just won't install. It must be my dodgy domain. Uh, it's probably because it's running on VMware. That's 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 what I'll blame. Uh, but it worked all the previous times for me. But uh, uh, so it's. But to put it simply, though, it, it's the replacement for web-ready document viewing. Yes, it is, um, and. The one thing that I am actually complaining about is um, that it isn't finished. Uh, well, the Office Web App Server might be, but if you go into um, Exchange 2013, uh, at least that was my experience, and you open a Word document, the Office Web App Server opens up, which is fine. But if you open a, a file type, for instance, let's say a PDF document, which isn't supported by Office Web Apps, then it'll actually throw an error say, and say to you, well, WebRemedy document viewing isn't available which is normal because it isn't part of Exchange 2013. So in my opinion, they should have said something like, you can't do a previewing instead of throwing an error that some feature isn't available, which has been deprecated. So either it's 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 me, but yeah, I'm not too happy about that though. So have you looked at the, the licensing required around Office Web App Server? I haven't. Because that's, that's the interesting bit then. So someone needs to blog about that and, uh, and see what... Uh, crosses need to be uh, in the box uh, to make sure that that's fully licensed especially if you you're going to be building as a, a central i suppose load balanced uh, implementation because uh, if it's supporting link sharepoint and exchange it's going to be a uh, perhaps not a critical point of infrastructure but it's going to be something you don't want to go down yeah well uh, it 
for scalability reasons, then at some point you, you'll have to add a second, maybe a third server. Um, but the beauty of it is, um, especially about the Office Web App Server, is that it's it's really easy to make it um, highly available and to scale it out. So um, I really do like uh, the way it is made, but uh, I don't know anything about licensing. So if you would need actually, or if you would actually need a, a separate license for every of, um, Office Web App Server that you apply, um, then I can see that becoming an issue um, other than the fact that you'll have a Windows license that you'll have to spend anyway. So My, my understanding is that um, you're only responsible for the Windows OS license for a web app server. And, and like you mentioned, um, Sirkin, um, or Michael, that um, uh, you can uh, create essentially like a sh- almost like a SharePoint farm with uh, Office Web App servers and just add multiple servers to that farm to achieve your high availability. But it is required uh, for Link as well. It, it handles all of your PowerPoint uh, uh, uploads and presentations. The caveat with this is always that you've got to check with your own licensing specialists or, or uh, law to, to make sure that what we're saying is actually true. Uh, I know in previous versions, I'm, I'm fairly sure you needed to, uh, for example, if you're a volume licensing customer, have uh, Office and Software Assurance to make use of uh, Office Web App Server in 2010. But uh, don't quote me on that. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, so I assumed it's it's going to be a similar sort of affair uh, with 2013. But if it's just the OS, then then even better, because uh, especially if you've got data center licenses on some virtual infrastructure, that could uh, mean that although it's an additional component to manage, it's it's not going to be uh, too heavy on the licensing. And licenses, who needs them? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying nothing to that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's it. I mean, the thing I hear time and time again is uh, if you've got an enterprise agreement or a campus agreement, and you're then you're going to be able to make better use of these licenses, and you can really get your money's worth. But if you're having to buy them individually for each project, then it's almost impossible uh, to because suddenly it's you know a, a million pound just in licenses uh, to upgrade Office and Exchange and cows for Windows as well. Uh, but you know, if you got it all in uh, a low cost sort of year on year package, then it, it works better. But I, I don't know much about licensing. I've, I've managed a few uh, license agreements, but I, I tried to throw it away as quickly as I could. Uh, so licensing, check it out. Then well, someone's going to have to do a blog about it. I don't know whether that's going to be Michael because uh, he, he's done a few Office web apps posts. Uh, but if not, uh, we'll, we'll check that out. Uh, and see what uh, the, the basics are of licensing for Office Web App Server. But it definitely sounds like it's going to be a, a key component to uh, any uh, Exchange 2013 implementation where you want to have that uh, OWA-based web-ready viewing. Uh, and the, the thing is, it's got to sit on a separate server, hasn't it? It can't go on a CAS server or a, a, a mailbox server either. No, it has to be a separate one, so... Right, I think that's about it for topics then today. Uh, it's been a bit of a shorter show than usual, but uh, I hope that's okay because uh, we've had a very special guest on, Greg Taylor. Thank you very much for, for coming on the show. Uh, How has it been for you? Uh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, very, uh, very enjoyable. Um, hope we can do it again at some point. 
fantastic. Tell talk your again friends. in six months and see if we'll talk again in six months and see if TMG is, uh, has been brought back from the dead, shall we? <laughs> and it sounds like uh, there's something on the horizon for hosters that uh, uh, if you can tell us if you can tell us first, uh, we would really appreciate it. We love having scoops on this show. Uh, and I'd like to thank my co-host this week as well. Thanks, guys, for for coming along and uh, asking your questions to Greg. Uh, and our editor this week is is obviously Michael again. Uh, and thanks in advance. Uh, hopefully, it's not going to be too tough. Uh, hopefully, uh, unlike the last show, uh, you can hear my voice properly. Uh, apologies for my last show's recording where I sounded like I was in the bathroom. Uh, I was recording from my laptop at the other side of the room. So, fingers crossed, it won't be uh, that bad this week. Uh, and thank you to you at home for listening. Uh, we want to remind you that the UC Architects are online and to visit our website at www.theucarchitects.com. You can find us on Twitter at The UC Architects or on Facebook at facebook.com slash The UC Architects. And of course, we're on LinkedIn. Podcast episodes are available in the iTunes Store, the Zoom Marketplace, and in your favourite RSS client like Outlook. And see our links for everything on the show. We'll see you back for the next episode with Pat Hosting. Thanks for listening.